Well, good evening, every, everyone. Um, my name is Matthew West, and I'm chairing this session this evening. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce Adrian Walker, who is giving tonight's talk um, in the database and ontology miniseries. Um, uh, the, uh, the topic tonight is usability, databases, and ontologies. Uh, Adrian Walker is the Chief Technology Officer of Reengineering LLC. Uh, Adrian has authored many papers and a book on logic-based systems and databases. Um, he was an assistant professor at Rutgers University and manager of principles and applications of logic programming at IBM's Yorktown Research Laboratory. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Adrian. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Peter and Matthew. Um, I hope uh, everybody is able to view slide one, which says usability databases and ontologies. And uh, I'll go to slide two, please. Uh, the things to talk about today are um, some visions for the future of the web and uh, a sort of negative vision as well from somebody quite important in the web world. And uh, then we'll go to a view of current work on semantics, and uh, we'll talk about some aspects of RDF, OWL, and the ruled interchange, the upcoming ruled interchange format, RIF. Uh, I'm very aware that, that some of the folks on this uh, virtual meeting um, are experts in, in the areas of RDF and OWL, uh, so, uh, experts, please bear with me. Um, uh, the idea is to sketch a little bit of what's going on uh, for those of us who, who haven't been following the field uh, very closely. Uh, then we'll go to um, a wider technical view of semantics. Um, and um, somebody said in a, in a conference a while back on semantics that the, the interesting thing about that word is that it's one of the most ambiguous in the English language. But if we want to, if we all agree that semantics are important and we want to do something with them, then perhaps we can start to be more precise in different ways with different choices. And here's one of the choices, which is to look into uh, three kinds of semantics, which uh, we'll call semantics one, two, and three, and uh, see how they can be integrated in, in an actual system and see what that would buy us. So. The actual system we'll be talking about is, is live on the web um, and functions as a kind of wiki for business rules. And very controversially, uh, particularly since we're talking about ontologies, the vocabulary is going to be open, uh, not a controlled vocabulary, not a, a structured English approach at all. Uh, so this is technology that's, that's quite unexpected and different for many folks. Um, of course, uh, you will be able to use the system to manage controlled vocabularies, but uh, it's not restricted to that. And uh, then we'll do a, a kind of summary, um, which uh, will uh, focus on the fact that usability can be extended to authorability uh, once you've uh, made your English executable. So uh, let's go to slide three. Um, some visions for the future of the web and a caution. Uh, so a quote from uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the World Wide Web. If HTML and the web made all on online documents look like one huge book, the semantic web will make all the data in the world look like one huge database. Great vision. 
um, hard to achieve. And on the other hand, uh, Tim O'Reilly, who's very famous for the O'Reilly series of uh, books on various aspects of software, um, has sort of seen what's going on and uh, abstracted that to the notion of a Web 2.0 that harnesses users' collective intelligence. And the emphasis there is on lightweight user interfaces, uh, development models, and also business models. And curiously, there's just a little note at the bottom there. Um, when anybody comes up with a good term like Web 2.0, somebody is bound to uh, copyright it, and uh, somebody has copyrighted it for something completely different from what uh, Tim O'Reilly was talking about. Uh, let's go to slide four. Um, there's a caution from uh, Rob McCool, um, and he says, Logic, which forms the basis of OWL, is a complex format and requires users to sacrifice expressivity. New representations, italics mine, must be easy to translate to and from natural language. And uh, the thing in red there in the middle of the page is Rob McCool's uh, take on this, the semantic web as uh, envisaged, I guess, uh, by, uh, by Tim Berners-Lee, will fail. Now, if, if anybody sort of comes up and says that about a big project like the Semantic Web, you kind of like to see where they're coming from, what their experience is. And um, Rob McCool wrote the first version of the Apache Web Server, uh, which is sort of universal on the web, the initial spec for the CGI interface, which is also universal, and uh, contributed to the original Netscape browser. So he knows the field inside out, and he is not optimistic. Um, so we've got these two visions from um, Tim Berners-Lee and uh, um, uh, O'Reilly, and we've got a sort of contravision from Rob McCool. Let's go to slide five. So uh, given those uh, sort of uh, two positive visions and one negative vision, uh, let's kind of drill down a little bit and, and just look at some aspects uh, very quickly of RDF, OWL, and rule interchange format. So uh, going to slide six, um, from <coughs> uh, some years ago, um, the semantic web was illustrated with uh, this diagram on slide six. Um, which said it's widely known as the semantic web layer cake. And it sort of uh, gave a picture of how the various um, elements of the semantic web were supposed to fit together. And um, particularly, uh, we'll be looking at ontology, rules, and query, logic, and proof. And uh, we'll see that, in fact, uh, on a later slide, that the, the, the layer cake has evolved into something slightly different. But this is sort of where we are as we're looking at um, the original work on the semantic web. Let's go to slide seven and talk a bit about RDF. Uh, RDF, as many people know, uh, basically says that um, every all data in the world is going to be triples. Um, and uh, that way you'll get a flexible data model for merging different sources of data. And <clears throat> um, what you'll do with RDF is you'll help to manage it, uh, to reason about it um, in OWL, 
Um, and in particular, if different people have different identifiers that were selected for the same thing, OWL will help you to reason about that. And <clears throat> there's current work uh, in the W3C on the RAF, RIF, or Rules Interchange Format, and rules, of course, can be used to query or mine data. Going now to slide eight, um, if we look a bit more at RDF, um, let's try to make all the data look like one huge database. In doing that, be careful about naming things. Color, uh, with an English spelling here, can mean different things to different people. So instead of using just English words, use fairly long identifiers that look a little bit like um, URLs, but they're simply identifiers that allow you enough room to be very specific about what you mean. Um, RDF uh, has um, several syntaxes, um, but the idea is to express everything as triples. And so in the simplified form, you have a triple something like this URI for Jay Brokes, uh, his, it's a fact that he has an email, and it's a fact that this email is jbrokes at cs.vu.nl. Um, that's a simplified form uh, which we'll be uh, looking at. Uh, some people refer to this kind of form as N3. Um, but the usual form of RDF is, is a lot more verbose, and there are complaints about the verbosity, although uh, the defenders of RDF would say that, uh, well, it's not really meant to be read by people, it's meant to be read by machines. And that's going to be a key point in our um, view of semantics 1, 2, and 3. Going now to slide 9, um, <clears throat> if we want to make all the data in the world look like one huge database, uh, we have to face the facts that uh, most databases are not uh, um, all uh, um, set up as triples. So uh, a lot of tools are appearing that would basically allow you to stick with uh, whatever database format you like and uh, map that into triples for interchange across the web and back into another format at the other end. So there are these, at least these uh, four uh, tools uh, that uh, one can list um, so there's a lot of interest in, in the data translation there. Um, also, um, some of this is sort of making its way out of the research lab into the real world, and there's some very interesting uh, work by Hans Teigler, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, where he's Teigler. basically taking... Sorry? It's Teigler. Teigler, thank you. Uh, Hans Teigler um, is basically taking an ISO spec and uh, writing it in RDF, or at least being able to map it to RDF for interchange. And that's in the oil, gas, and chemical industries, and we'll have an example from that industry, too, uh, later in this talk. So going now to slide 10, let's talk a little bit about the web ontology language, not WOL, but OWL. Um, the idea is to uh, capture terminology level uh, knowledge. Um, so an ontology, for instance, could uh, contain information such as a journal paper is a publication. Um, as we said before, both RDF and OWL, which share much syntax, are read, meant to be read by computers, not by people. So um, the last two-thirds of the slide shows you uh, what OWL looks like uh, when it's saying that a paper has at least one author. 
So um, again, this is this is machine-oriented language. Um, uh, what you need is various tools to read it and to reason with it. Going to slide 11, um, it, it's interesting, and there's been quite a bit of debate on the lists recently, that um, different people come up with different OWL ontologies for standardization. And there's this uh, quote uh, from way back that says the nice things about standards is that there are so many of them to choose from. And um, actually, Tim Berners-Lee had a post quite recently where he said, well, th th this is really a fractal situation, meaning that lots of people do lots of little ontologies and sort of combine them, and then the combined ontologies get combined, so there's a, a, a pattern consisting of the same patterns consisting of the same patterns, and if, uh, um, according to Tim, uh, that's how you'll eventually get over this uh, nice thing in the third line there um, of having uh, more than one standard. Um, so OWL allows you to reason, and um, in uh, somewhat more uh, uh, human-friendly syntax, an ontology A um, might have something like a bicycle as a subclass of all um, ontology B land vehicles that happens to have exactly two wheels. And you would write that down um, in somewhat cleaned up OWL syntax uh, as onto a bicycle OWL equivalent class and then everything in the square brackets. And um, uh, the, the big thing about um, ontologies to date seems to be the ability to use OWL reasoning to check an ontology for consistency and completeness. Let's go to slide 12 and let's look at a, a little example um, that we'll come back to again later. Um, <clears throat> what uh, the slide shows is um, uh, data mining being a subtopic of knowledge discovery, being a subtopic of the semantic web. And uh, we could easily say that in OWL and in various other languages. We could also say that uh, Adrian, Bob, and Claire on slide 13 are instances of researcher. And then we could go to slide 14 and we could put in um, a relation in red, does research on. Uh, so Bob does research on data mining and so on. Now this is actually an example pulled from the list. Uh, uh, somebody who is fairly new to RDF and OWL, uh, we're on slide 14 now, um, asked how can I use RDF and OWL to find out from the above that Bob does research into the semantic web. And to give you an idea on slide 15, um, of sort of the state of the art, um, the expert replied, you can do it by declaring subtopic to be trans transitive and then by using a rule such as the one shown there. Uh, such rules can be expressed in a couple of rule languages that we'll talk about, but you'd have to find an inference tool from them. For them. So that's probably not a terribly encouraging answer from an expert to a new user. If we go to slide 16, um, and we'll come back to, the, uh, to that uh, example in a minute. Um, in, in slide 16, we're talking a little bit about rule interchange format. Um, rules can be used to query or mine data. Um, there's a proposal called Rule ML, um, and it basically says let's write forward training and also backward training rules in XML. So something like a customer is a premium if their spending has been so much in the previous year um, gets expanded out into XML 
um, as in at the bottom of the slide, uh, at the bottom of slide 16. Going to slide 17, there's another um, <coughs> proposed, proposed uh, rule language for the semantic web. Uh, it's called SWRL, um, and the idea is to combine OWL and rule ML rules, and here's an example rule in SWRL. Now, an important point for later is that executing that rule actually um, does a destructive assignment. It sets a value um, in X1's has-brother property. We go to 18. Um, the rule interchange format work is underway at the W3C. Uh, there's a way of, uh, there's a link to it there where one can see uh, um, the public part of their discussions. And um, the rule interchange syntax is not yet fixed. An issue that um, uh, can be raised about the whole part, the whole idea of RIF is that um, basically it's like defining a notation without saying what the denotation is. So it doesn't really say what's going to happen to the rules once you define the syntax. So the, there are problems looming on the horizon, which is that different rule engines behave differently given the same, fact, the same facts and rules. Um, and so that is another place where, you know, the, there's um, a, a gap, a semantic gap sort of opening up. These are meaning assignment issues beyond the data semantics of RDF and OWL. Going to slide 19, uh, up on the left is the early semantic web layer cake version. And a more recent version um, that's uh, going around on the web has basically taken the ontology uh, layer from the early version and sort of uh, um, combined it with rules, inter rules interchange format. Um, uh, above that, there's a new uh, well, proof is there, but it's a different shape. And there's something called unifying logic that is supposed to unify um, the uh, SQL-like language, Sparkle, all ontologies, and reasoning with rules. So things are changing a little bit, particularly as rules come into the picture. Going now to slide 20, um, uh, we've sort of uh, um, talked about visions for the future of the web and a particular view of current work on semantics. Let's go now to this idea of a wider technical view, semantics 1, 2, and 3. The, going to slide 21 now, um, if you think about a real-world problem, and this is uh, actually taken from a paper by some folks at NIST, um, a retailer may be thinking about PCs as PCs for gamers. A manufacturer may be making something called a professional desktop. Those may actually be, for practical purposes, um, the same thing, but of course they have different names, so uh, these people have to get on the phone or somehow um, negotiate the semantic difference between these two terms for the same thing. If we go to slide 22 and we think about the semantic web um, enabling that kind of negotiation, then we can see that that would be happening in machine-oriented RDF-like language. If we go to... Uh, somebody have a question? I had a beep there. 
if you have a question. It's uh, probably please. just someone dropping in or dropping out. Sir, ah, maybe. okay, okay. Um, so we're on slide 22 here, and we see um, two different ways of negotiating the semantic different, uh, distance uh, between uh, the manufacturer and the retailer. If we go to slide 23, um, there's sort of a problem, which is that um, if you hand over to the machines at the bottom this kind of negotiation, at the top in the real world, you really won't know what happened and whether you agree with what happened. And since we're talking about business and maybe about military applications and things like that, any kind of semantic disconnect like that is something we have to do something about. And on slide 24, we have a manager sort of throwing up his hands and saying, well, you know, what's going on? Going to slide 25, um, here's where uh, we can start to uh, sort of make our semantics more solid in a particular way. And, of course, uh, there will be different ways of doing this. We can say that semantics one is data semantics, uh, as we've been looking at. We mentioned that um, in connection with the rule interchange format that, um, that there's some uneasiness about what rule engines will do with a different given set of rules. And semantics two can specify um, by means of a logical model theory what a rule engine should do. And um, that sort of gives you a gold standard um, because the theory is clear and simple but, of course, it's not efficient enough to be used as an engine. So we get back to an old saw in computer science. First, make it right. Let's have a model theory for it. Then make it fast and make sure that the fast version actually implements the model theory. And then uh, when you've done that, you have some data semantics. You have some rule semantics uh, sort of nice and solid behind you. But um, you're still in the area where you don't really know what the machine-oriented notations are supposed to mean in the real world. So semantics three is the meaning of English concepts at the user interface, and more particularly at the author interface. So um, a, a way of approaching that is to say, don't say object property atom P33 X Y Z, but instead say some name is an author with email, some email of some title, and be able to type that into a web browser and reason with it without building a dictionary and grammar beforehand. Going now to slide 26, um, we saw that um, the uh, rule proposals that are being fed into the uh, rule interchange format working group are basically saying rules are either forward chaining or back chaining. And implicit in that is a collection of rules as a program. When you write your rules, you better be pretty careful about how they're going to be executed. And if you change the order of the rules, you'll get different results. Um, in that picture of how rules have been since for the last 20 years or so, you have also, if the user interface deals with English, then there's a dictionary and grammar in the system to control the vocabulary and syntax. And for rules to work efficiently over a database, somebody's going to have to write and maintain SQL queries. And again, if you want explanations from the rule system, if you look at the commercial systems that are out there, um, you must annotate the rules with English because they're not in English. So let's think about shifting the representation, slide 27, and say, okay, if we can write our rules in open vocabulary English, 
then instead of in gray rules are either forward training or back training, we get in blue rules simply mean what they say. And making that representation shift from technical notations to English um, means that you get all sorts of other surprising things. A collection of rules is much more like a specification than a program. Um, if you change the order of the rules, this is now going back to having a model theory that says what the rule engine is supposed to do. If you change the order of the rules, you'll get the same results because that's what you'd expect from a specification. Um, if the user interface deals with English, then there actually be, need be no dictionary or grammar in the system. And this is going to seem blue sky to folks, and if John Sower has joined us already, um, I think he may have a lot to say about um, this particular approach to reasoning with English. Um, but the only thing to say at the moment uh, is that there is an underlying online system that uh, we hope you'll have time to play with after the talk. Um, for rules to work efficiently over a database, you can generate SQL and run it automatically. And if you want explanations, because the rules were written in English, you don't need to annotate the rules anymore. They are what they say they are. Uh, going to slide 28, um, we recall um, this is a copy of an earlier slide where we said there's a semantic disconnect between the machine-oriented notations at the bottom and the English uh, that people think about uh, when they're doing business in the real world. Um, and if we go to slide 29, we can see that making this representation shift, in particular um, getting explanations, um, we can get rid of this semantic disconnect um, because we can get an English explanation. So although everything went on in machine-oriented uh, notations at the bottom level, um, when the retailer asked something, uh, she could get an explanation. The retailer term PC for gamers and the manufacturer term professional desktops agree. And likewise for the manufacturer on the other side there. Going to slide 30. Um, so far what we've talked about is um, uh, basically taking this view of semantics 1, 2, and 3. And now let's see how those three kinds of semantics can work together in an actual implementation, implemented system. So we'll look at some examples, and um, I may go fairly fast through the examples uh, to allow um, adequate time for um, discussion. So um, let's, let's go ahead. So looking at slide 31, we said that semantics three is basically concerns the meaning of um, uh, English words and phrases um, at the author and user interface. So we've got a business analyst writing business rules, um, again, in open vocabulary English into the browser, uh, running the rules using the browser and getting English explanations of the results. On slide 32, um, we begin to see what supports that underneath the blue line across the middle. Um, we said that there's a logical model theory that's going to say what consequences should follow from any collection of rules and facts. And that's going to be built in offline into the system. So programmers won't uh, normally be involved in what's happening above the blue line. And if we go to slide 32, 
basically um, the stuff below the blue line has got built into an application-independent engine, and the name of the system is Internet Business Logic. What's still missing there is the notion of databases. So if we go to slide 34, um, the idea that the system can now um, generate uh, SQL automatically and run it and then go all the way back um, to the browser and give the results and the explanation um, uh, sort of completes the picture of what the system is and what it does. So there's a little bit of sort of internet distribution here with those um, uh, angled arrows. Um, the three things can be on different machines, and there can indeed be many SQL databases and RDF sources involved across the net, as indicated on the right, not, not just one of each. Going now to slide 35, let's come back to our um, example where the new user asked how to use RDF and OWL to do something. And you'll recall the expert replied, here's how you can do it, but you'll have to find an inference tool. And the subtext of that is the inference tool will be pure uh, forward training or pure back training, or at least you'll have to be very um, sort of programmer oriented in, in how you write your rules so you get the right result out of the rule engine. Uh, going to slide 36, um, here's how you would write this into a browser um, uh, to make it work in this particular system, Internet Business Logic. So um, the, uh, the subtopic relation, you would write uh, this item as a subtopic of this topic, and you'd list the um, three links uh, below uh, like that. And this is, this is actually what you'd write into the browser. Likewise, on slide 37, um, for the facts about uh, um, who is a researcher, you'd list Adrian, Bob, and Claire. And on slide 38, uh, you'd add the relation does research on, Adrian does research on knowledge discovery, and so on. Uh, once you've done that, you've basically got three tables of facts in the system. And on slide 39, you could start to write rules. And when you write rules, you use essentially the same sentences that you used in the table of facts for the premises of a rule above the dotted line in green there. And uh, you would conclude either a new sentence or a new instance of a previous sentence. So um, this rule is um, perhaps, you know, not beautiful English, um, but the approach allows you to do things like um, write a rule that's going to reason over a hierarchy. And of course, this, these hierarchies uh, in, in the diagram at the top of slide 39 are very simple ones, but there's a sort of sneaky property of that rule uh, in green at the bottom, which is that it would actually reason over a hierarchy of a, you know, like a, the parts explosion of a 747 uh, airliner. The hierarchy can be as deep as you like. There's actually recursion hidden in the rule. And uh, as people who are programmed with rules know, you have to be very careful about things like that. But a good part about having the semantics too for a rule engine is that those concerns essentially go away. Um, if we go to slide 40, another rule, same kind of format. Um, so this allows you to say that a person does research into a topic, um, even if that's not directly listed, but if you can 
climb around the uh, subtopic hierarchy um, to find out uh, what, what is going on. So with those tables and those two rules, you can ask the question on slide 41, uh, Bob does research into what topic? And on slide 42, the answer comes back, Bob does research into data mining, knowledge discovery, and semantic web. And you can see from the diagram at the top that the system has quite nicely climbed up the hierarchy at the left uh, to tell you uh, what's going on. If we go to slide 43, we can say, why is it that Bob does research into the semantic web? Well, the explanation is because he does research into data mining, and data mining is a subtopic of the semantic web. But on slide 44, that's not the whole explanation. There's another step to the explanation, and here's where that recursive rule uh, gets unwound through two instances uh, so that you get the final result. So um, in the online system, um, there are many more interesting um, uh, sort of semantic web-type um, examples than this one. But it's a, a nice example because it's something that a beginner had a problem with, and um, uh, it's, it's fairly simple so that one can see the idea of how to approach things uh, via this semantics 1, 2, and 3 in, in this system. Going now to slide 45, um, once you have a system that can sort of has made this representation shift to saying um, we're not going to write rules in machine-oriented notation anymore, we're going to write them in English as far as we know how, um, and we're not going to restrict the vocabulary in which we write the English, and to a large extent we're not going to restrict the syntax of the English either. Um, this means that a lot comes for free once you've made that rather um, uh, uh, difficult step um, to as much English as we can do. And um, th there's a lot of discussion on the web at the moment um, about um, basically English natural language processing being the difficult problem for artificial intelligence and even for the semantic web. And the approach here is um, really to go around that difficult problem and just be very pragmatic and just do enough lightweight English processing so that we're sure that we know what the author of a rule intended it to mean in the real world rather than being stuck with um, a manual translation maybe from a free text English document into machine-oriented rule notation and back out again. Um, in, in this case, the system does that translation for you. Um, so um, coded medical data is sometimes very, very coded. This is taken from a fairly old medical database. But at the bottom of slide 45, um, you can see that even though it's got a sort of um, a heading that tells you something about what the columns mean, um, unless you're an expert on this particular medical coding, you really don't know what BCA and the numbers mean and so on. But you can write rules over data like this, um, like the one in the middle of the slide, that say what I'm really looking for is patients who had um, treatments uh, that were inpatient and outpatient and um, that overlapped in time. So here's a way of sort of doing some knowledge-based data mining on coded data. On slide 46, 
Um, uh, if you wrote rules like that, and of course we've jumped over a lot of extra rule writing, but this example is on the web, um, you can ask, uh, so what overlapping conditions are there? And um, you, the system comes back and says, well, um, in the second line of the table there, um, somebody appeared to have um, uh, a treatment for antipartum with medical complications and also uh, treatment for female infertility. So that may be a signal that either there's bad data there or um, at an extreme maybe there's insurance fraud going on, but this is a way of extracting um, things that you think might be going on from a database and, and checking whether they are in fact happening. If you get an answer like that, um, uh, you would probably want an explanation because you might not trust the rules, you might not trust the underlying data. Going to uh, slide 47, um, the beginning of an explanation looks like slide 47. Um, the next step on slide 48 uh, says how we got the overlap. Uh, the next step on slide 49 um, says this is how we began to look up in the coded medical data um, what the timing was and how we reasoned about it and, and so on. Um, if you run this example um, on the web, you'll see that um, the explanation on slide 49 is actually a hypertexted explanation so that you can sort of jump around and uh, drill down as needed into what can be a fairly long reasoning process. Um, one of the things we found is that if you reason with RDF data, everything is triples, and the reasoning, even in simple examples, becomes very, very complicated very quickly. So you really need something like a hypertexted explanation or a diagram of some kind um, to understand the reasoning. Going to slide 50, um, a different example now, um, and one that was developed actually with a colleague of Matthews at, um, at Shell, um, if you are concerned about supply chain in the oil industry, then you have all sorts of factors acting on sales demand. And on slide 51, you have to somehow reconcile those factors um, with the way that the supply chain works um, to, to actually get uh, the gasoline to the right place at the right time. On slide 52, um, we come back to this idea that a business analyst um, who has a requirement to meet customer demand, given that alternative products may be used, can start to write that information into a browser. And on slide 53, here's um, a, a rule that uh, you can actually see on the web and you can run. And it basically says, um, here's how we're going to um, allocate products from different refineries to, um, to uh, supplier demand. On slide 54, um, the uh, first rule had a sentence for estimated demand, here's what we'll do, and here's a rule that supports that with saying, here's how we'll um, calculate what we're going to do with that estimated demand. On slide 55, um, now we're getting into a place where um, so far we don't really know how to do this without a little bit of structuring of the English. Um, so in the second line, second and third lines of the bottom rule on slide 55, we're talking about the sum over a number equals a total. 
Um, so there's a little bit of um, required syntax there, but between the colon and the equal sign, the syntax is still free. Uh, if we go to slide 56, um, so the idea is that um, one can be on the web, one can be typing rules into a browser, and one can immediately run them and refine them. Um, and in particular, if we wrote the rules correctly and the system wasn't complaining about anything, um, we would get uh, this answer on slide 57, which is a particular way of, um, of uh, meeting that demand. So um, on slide 58, uh, um, we said uh, whenever, once you've built a system like this, you can always get English explanations of the results. And on slide 59, um, we begin to see how the explanation unwinds. And slide 60, further step in the explanation. Slide 61, uh, how it uh, arrived at the sum. And um, if you run this on the web, you, you'll see that the explanation goes down quite deep. But again, it's, it's hypertexted, uh, which can help with uh, jumping around in it. So going to slide 62, um, we said uh, when we were looking at um, sort of the way the system works to uh, combine these semantics 1, 2, and 3, um, that uh, the system could automatically generate SQL um, to do what we've just been uh, looking at. So in the simple example, we didn't really need SQL, but of course in real life, um, databases get very big, and um, uh, we really don't want to run the, throw all the work of reasoning about a huge database onto the rule engine. We want to have the rule engine generate SQL on the fly and um, send it to uh, SQL databases across the web where they will do what they do best, which is reasoning over large amounts of data. So on slide 63, um, in underlying the example that we saw before, we had a data table, um, a number of data tables, but one of them was we have a certain method of transportation, um, and here's what it is, truck or rail. But if we uh, want to have the system go look that up in SQL instead, um, what we'll do is we'll take the top sentence from the table at the top, and we'll make it the conclusion of a rule at the, the bottom green line on slide 63. And above the um, dotted line um, at the bottom there, instead of another English sentence, we'll have instructions for the system to say, uh, go to example.com, find a database that's a MySQL database, find a database system, uh, in that database system, find a database called transport and a table called T1, and do all this on a certain port and give an ID and a password. And if you can do all that, then you can conclude this bottom line, we have some method of transportation. Um, so just substituting actual tables typed into a browser with these link rules that say where to go to find a SQL database, um, you get the same kind of behavior from the system. But uh, as we see on slide 64, um, What's happening now is that um, SQL will be generated automatically um, when we ask a question. So on slide 65 is actually um, part of the SQL that's generated automatically um, uh, when we run this oil industry example. And um, this 
again begins to make SQL look like a machine-oriented language, although I guess its design uh, way back when was it was thought to be a person-oriented or at least a programmer-oriented language. Um, on slide 66, let's discuss a bit um, what we've just looked at. Um, it's, it would be pretty difficult to write that SQL query reliably by hand and to manually reconcile it with the business knowledge and the rules. And yet that example is simpler than for a real supply chain. Um, then how do we know that the automatically generated SQL implements the business rules correctly? Well, because we can still get those step-by-step business-level English explanations, even though we moved a lot of the hard work um, onto SQL and even onto distributed SQL databases. Going to slide 67, um, could a programmer write a more readable SQL query by hand? Yes, um, but then you'd need to add comments in English to help people um, reconcile what's going on. And the comments would not be used during machine processing, so correctness would rely on lengthy manual verification. And, of course, if you wanted to make a change to the business rules, you'd be in the business of going through the whole process of writing very complex uh, SQL and uh, somehow verifying that there were no misunderstandings. And then, um, as we all know, uh, comments are sometimes not kept up to date with the code anyway. Okay, so let's try to summarize this section. Um, the idea is then to take this uh, semantics 1, 2, and 3 and combine in one system for non-expert authors and users, semantics 1, page, uh, slide 69, data semantics, which is essentially the current technology, uh, going to slide 70, semantics 2, the logical model theory that specifies uh, what a reasoner should do, and going to slide 71, uh, semantics 3, the application semantics, if you will, the English meanings at the author and user interface. Uh, let's go to slide 72. Um, one of the things that happens when you shift representations like this is that um, you get some serendipity. Um, uh, if you go to Google and type in for estimated demand that ID fraction of the order, that's not even a, a well-formed English sentence, it's just some keywords thrown at Google, um, then what you get back on slide 73 is the executable English rules and facts that define the application, and there's also a paper about the application. There's a proper link to it at the end of the slides. So um, what you're beginning to get is... Um, a sort of unification of what people do when they talk to one another about the semantics of a particular application and um, Google-like searches across the web. And if we look forward about this, um, it, it seems as though this might be quite important if we thought about raising the current interoperability concerns that um, are addressed by OWL um, if we tried to raise those to the level of executable English, uh, maybe that would be an interesting way to go. Um, also, um, if you're 
um, you know, in future when the system is perhaps more widely used and uh, you want some rules for a given purpose, you might type some search terms into Google and you might actually find them on the web. Whereas if you were looking for programs, this is much more difficult to do um, because the, the concepts in, in, in Java programs, for instance, are much more oriented towards programmers and perhaps less likely to get the kind of hit uh, that you would like from Google. So um, if, if we think about this whole um, effort as um, how is the semantic web going to evolve, um, it, it looks hopeful that there is a lot of uh, um, mileage to be gained from raising our concerns up, um, not neglecting the machine-oriented aspects, but tying them together with English concepts that mean things in the real world and making the, the whole um, sort of semantics one, two, and three work smoothly together in an executable system, in, in an actual system that's running. So uh, going to slide 74, uh, we looked at um, Tim Berners-Lee's vision and uh, a caution from Rob McCool. Um, we took a view of the current work on data semantics, which consisted of RDF, OWL, and RIF, the rule interchange format. And then we said, okay, uh, let's see what taking a wider technical view would buy us. Um, let's think about semantics one, data semantics. Semantics two is, um, if you will, a mat mathematical theory of what a reasoning engine should do. And semantics three is, well, when you write something as an author, um, don't only write it into a Word document, um, write it as executable English and run it and see what it does. And in that sense, you may be getting a, um, an instant feedback about whether what the English you, you wrote, you have expectations of what the English should do, uh, does it in fact do it? Well, you get immediate feedback about that. And um, we looked at a system that combines those three kinds of semantics, um, and we looked at um, a sort of academic owl example, a medical data mining example, and an oil industry example. Um, for for um, semantic web folks, um, as mentioned, the, there are um, many other examples available on, on the online system that sort of take things like particular owl test cases and show how they, um, they work in, in this particular system. And we said that there may be um, quite a lot of value add from the fact that Google actually finds such business rules that are written in English. So the, the bottom line is maybe we can go not only uh, some improvements in usability, but we also can get to authorability without uh, programming in the usual sense um, by uh, making our English content executable. And that sort of um, hopefully... Um, comes back a little bit to Tim O'Reilly's vision where um, I, I guess in the military this is referred to as edge systems where um, basically the users are supplying the content. It's not only a central location that's supplying the content. Um, so slide 75 is just some links and that, that's basically um, the end of the talk. Thanks for your patience and uh, maybe we can get some discussion going now.
Well, thank you very much, Adrian. That was uh, extremely interesting. Um, are there any questions, please? Um, are you going to unmute everyone, uh, uh, Peter? What, what, what process are we going to follow here? I have a question. Who is that? Dennis Thomas with Knowledge Foundations. Go ahead, please. Um, this, this is uh, really good. I wanted to ask you on slides uh, 60 to 65 uh, in particular, um, it is, will, do you foresee in the future that this technology will have a, a predictive, or predictive reasoning uh, capability? I know you mentioned the, the inference and so forth and backward uh, inference, but I'm thinking more in terms of uh, if you have, uh, you know, a, di a dynamic environment, for example, a weather and the supply chain. So we know in the U.S. that uh, weather was pretty mild, you know, for the first uh, two, two or three months of the winter, and then all of a sudden it, it did get rather intense. So I have to believe that that impacted the uh, supply chain. So how... Would this system include um, dynamic variables such as weather, such as accidents, or other kinds of uh, events? Okay, it's, it's, it's a nice question. Um, I, I think the way you would use the system um, for the sort of scenario you, you um, described is you would probably um, link it up to SQL databases that are actually changing, okay, so that's one place that you get the dynamics in. You may also want to do sensitivity studies whereby you actually alter and do a, a, a what if the fall is extremely cold or what if um, the winter is extremely warm. And then you would run the rules again and you would see different allocations coming out uh, suggested by the system. Does that... Does that uh, sort of address your question? Oh, it absolutely does, and I and I have to believe that in the future, you know, all of that will it'll be automated and and it'll just simply happen. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I I I would like to be as optimistic as you, but but I think um, you know, if uh, a system is going to make uh, real-world decisions about things like whether there's any gasoline in Connecticut in January, um, then there better be sort of human beings having oversight of it, looking at what's happening and what the system is predicting and what the system is doing in the way of allocation. And even people writing different business rules saying, well, it looks like it would be a disaster if the fall and the, um, the winter were very cold. Um, let's have a different set of rules to um, allocate the, uh, the, the energy supplies in an equitable way. So um, I, I think a key point, in if you're going to use a system like this, which, which is you know just a beta system at this point, but if you're going to scale it up to full industry um, and, and really use it in the real world, then um, the idea of being able to do very quick what-if studies without writing reams of SQL and worrying about whether you got it right, then, then I think um, the idea of writing the rules in English also feeds into that. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you. Are there any other questions then, please?
appreciate. Uh, if anyone has a question, uh, you may uh, put up your hand with a 1-1, one, one, or since we don't have a queue, uh, you might just choose to do a star 3, unmute yourself, uh, announce who you are, and start speaking. Hi, this is Ken Veslovsky. Can I ask a question? Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, in your discussion about the use of English, there seems to be several purposes behind the English. I mean, I, you know, you, you use it for explaining things, explaining rules, explaining, um, you know, what happened in a, um, in an interchange. Uh, but you're also using it to specify uh, rules and queries. Um, could you comment a little bit on that? It seems to me that those are somewhat different uses of English and that uh, one could actually have one of those without the other. Okay, so it's uh, using English to specify. And, and using English, English to explain. To explain. Mm -hmm. so you um, specify yeah, and explain. I, I, I guess um, if you want explanations from a rule system where the rules were written um, in technical notations, then what you have to do is, um, is, as far as I know, this is the only technology I know about, is you have to take those technical rules and sit down with the programmer who wrote them and have a domain expert or a knowledge uh, management person or a business analyst um, agree with the programmer that this rule means this piece of English text, which we'll now annotate the rule with. And then you're in a position um, to produce English explanations. But you've also, in, in a kind of hidden way, um, uh, attached a ball and chain to yourself, because now if you want to change the rule, um, in the technical notation, you'll have to go through that process again when the business analyst sits down with the programmer and changes the English annotation of the rule. Otherwise, the explanations are going to be just 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 wrong. Okay, because there'll be it, it's like the comments in a program getting out of step with the program itself. Um, it, it very quickly becomes unmanageable. So a motivation for going back to the source now and saying let's not write rules in technical notations, let's write them in English, is um, to sort of get rid of that difficulty when rules are changing all the time of getting uh, correct explanations back out. Because if you're writing the rules in English in the first place, there's no way the explanations can get out of step with the rules. Mm -hmm. does, does, that, does that help? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to understand. Thank you. We did have someone uh, put up his hands, mm -hmm. uh, shows up as anonymous, so we don't know who he is, uh, he or she is, but uh, you're the only person <coughs> hands up. If you uh, do an unmute, do, do a star three, uh, then please speak up. Announce yourself first. Oh, hello, this is John Stowell. Hello. Hello. Yes, hello. 
This Sean, is Sean here. Am I on the line? Uh, yes, there are two people. So uh, since John spoke up first, John, will you go ahead and then maybe... The oh, first okay. Uh, uh, the question oh. that I had is uh, how I... Uh, um, how, how much... Uh, Many trials have you had with uh, actual users who have used this system? And uh, uh, my concern is that uh, it's okay if one user develops a pattern, an English-like pattern, that looks good to that user, but then how do you communicate that pattern to anyone else, and how is anyone other than the user, than the one who defined the pattern, going to remember exactly what wording and how this was phrased and uh, how the questions should be asked. Uh, have you done usability studies to determine uh, how people actually use this kind of a system? Okay, it's a beta, John, and um, uh, we haven't done proper usability studies, just anecdotal ones. Um, the question you ask is a very good one because um, if somebody writes a sentence in their own idiosyncratic way, um, and somebody else wants to use that, um, what the system will do is, um, supposing I take, um, you know, John's um, oil industry uh, rules, and I start to use them, but I use my own words and phrases, and they don't match uh, John's words and phrases, okay? So that, I think that's the situation you're putting forward? Yes, indeed. Yeah, Okay. So um, I'm in that situation. I write my own words and phrases into the browser, and I hit the button, and the system comes back and says, um, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact sentence that you used, but here's a sentence that John used that looks similar. And that's done by, you know, fairly conventional information retrieval techniques, closest match. The system will actually suggest to you um, how to match what John wrote with what you just wrote. Okay. Okay, it sounds that that could be an interesting uh, way to approach it, but then you, of course, have to uh, try it out on actual users to see how one, uh, one author's definitions can be matched up to another uh, user's um, uh, expectations and lots of different issues like that. Yeah, I mean, everybody is different, and um, I think that um, looking at recent discussions, uh, which you were part of, John, um, and, you know, that that's one of the stumbling blocks for our ontologies as well, um, and, and uh, this is a big yeah. question. Um, the, the only sort of positive thing towards solving that, that really rather big problem that you describe is this idea that... Um, uh, once uh, the rules are in English, um, Google will actually retrieve them. And, of course, Google um, uh, does disregard minor details when it's retrieving. So if they're just things like, you know, color spelt British or color spelt American, uh, Google, Google will actually bridge that. And, and so will the um, uh, sort of information retrieval stuff that's, that's built into the, the, the system. Okay. Uh, there was someone else uh, that was asking a question. Would you like to ask your question now? Right. Uh, this is uh, Adrian Dennis Thomas again with Knowledge Foundations. Uh, and this may be redundant. It just occurred to me when uh, the questioner two periods ago uh, uh, made the question about language. And because of the, the ambiguity of language, I could just see all kinds of problems entering in into this scenario. So based on that, do you feel that you would have 
much greater control if you were doing like an inside the firewall a knowledge base, if you want to call it that, where you would have uh, control over uh, over the rules and, and the language and so forth? Okay, um, it's a good question, and there, there, there's several aspects to that. Um, f first of all, as, as mentioned very briefly, um, although the system uh, allows you to write rules using your own words and phrases quite freely, um, it can be used to manage a controlled vocabulary. And, and indeed, you know, there are examples online that, that, that show it doing that. Um, but that, that's just sort of to get at the edge of your question. Um, the, the bigger question, I guess, is, um, you know, if, if you use the wiki-like aspects of this, um, do you want to limit the community that can write stuff into your particular oil industry rules or your particular medical database mining rules? And the, the, there is a, a mechanism uh, built into the system, which is just basically um, when you fire up an ID, um, you have um, a, a password, an author password, and a user password. And so um, if I'm starting a new effort, a wiki for oil industry, um, uh, executable English business rules, um, I would have an author password, and I might give it to John Sower and to Dennis, but not to anybody else. Um, but I might give the user password to 100 people. Um, so they could go use the rules, but they wouldn't be able to change them. Um, so um, that that may, to some extent, address your your firewall issue. You know, you, you you have control as the author, the first author to get a password, the author password. You can just give it to three people and no more, and tell the other people not to not to give it further. Um, so in that in that way, you can control things locally. Um, you also mentioned the ambiguity of English, and it is a big stumbling block um, for, for folks who um, uh, start to um, sort of think about even using the system. And um, basically, I, I think the reason a lot of concerns go away is because the English is executable. Um, even if you just read it without running it, um, if you read it without running it, you may be very worried about the, what the rules actually mean because you're doing the interpretation. But if you then run those rules and see the explanation, the English explanations, you'll see, aha, the person who wrote those rules wanted meaning three for this word. Um, uh, so a, a lot of the ambiguity goes away because you're looking at what the English does, uh, not about what you think it might do. And, you know, there's, um, uh, there's, a, there's a very nice sort of take-off on a tangent here. There's a very nice um, play by Tom Stoppard, uh, the title of which I forget, but uh, it's a comedy, and basically it teaches the audience of the play completely new meanings for English words. So by the end of the play, you know that if you want to insult people, uh, if you want to insult somebody, you call them a bicycle. If you want to really insult them, you call them a tricycle. Now, um, that's sort of, you know, that's a property of English and other natural languages that um, John Sower has written about recently, which is that the words and phrases somehow take up their meaning by how they're used. And in, in some sense, in, in, this is getting more philosophical now, if you um, come across a set of rules on the system 
and you just look at them, there's a great deal of worrying ambiguity. But if you come across that set of rules and run them, you'll know what they do, and you'll know what the person had in mind um, when they wrote them, because you'll see um, the results and you'll see the step-by-step English explanations. Okay, anyone else with a question then, please? Hello? Hello? Yes, who's that? Oh, this is Alan Bond. Uh, Please go ahead with your question. Yeah, well, I just really want to just make a remark that I'm pretty sure that the um, free, use of free any English construction is really is doomed to failure. Uh, people use English in so many different ways that you, you just cannot. Uh, you, 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 the system was bound to be unusable, and I, I just don't see that you're saying, "Oh well, it has a different meaning in the machine, a more limited meaning." Well, that, that's a whole other can of worms, which you would have. You know, basically, you're having you're defining a new. Uh, somehow you're going to map all, all your English sentences onto a much lim- more limited uh, set of statements. That's one. Now what you were saying will, will happen. So anyway, I, I think if you actually start to use it with real humans, um, and it'll, it will, it just won't work. And um, I'm not sure what the alternatives are. I mean, limiting the st- constructions in English could work. But you still, you actually need to limit the. Um, vocabulary as well and actually define the vocabulary more closely as well so I just don't see uh, I think at some point you're going to have to um, define some limited form of English but I, I, I don't see myself how to do that at the moment yeah the, there's, there's a very deep sort of philosophical question here um, which um, one, one can sort of address by saying okay there are um, <coughs> very good research efforts like Attempto Controlled English and I think uh, John Sova has a Controlled English uh, proposal as well um, that do um, control the vocabulary by means of a dictionary control the syntax by means of a grammar Um, these things are awfully brittle once you try to take them into the real world um, uh, partly because you have to remember um, even if there has been computational aids, you have to, as an author, you have to remember quite a lot about uh, what syntax to use and, 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 and what keywords to use and so on. Um, the other sort of aspect of this will never work is, well, let, let me backtrack a moment. Uh, my PhD thesis is in Chomsky grammars, and, um, you know, I, I, I love um, grammars and syntax and so on but um, it seems as, as I think you hinted awfully difficult to make a, a dictionary grammar system work in the real world um, so then that raises the question what's the alternative well the alternative is an alternative is the system and I would encourage you to go online and write some rules and, and run them and um, you know, come back to me off off list or off off meeting or on list for that matter, and say, well, um, here's what worked, here's what didn't work. So you say I can use any sentence. any English sentences. I can have any number of subordinate clauses, any number of agreements. I can. Have. The the system will tend to steer you to um, fairly simple English sentences, but um, the sort of 
I mean, somebody saw this system and they said, well, this is like COBOL. You know, COBOL, you can use any words and phrases you like, and it works. And the, the, there's a sort of element of that in this, although I think it's a lot more powerful than COBOL for, for semantic web processes, uh, purposes. Um, but, but basically, um, you're going to put English headings on tables of data. You're going to have to use these uh, slots or space uh, uh, space fillers like some dash and this dash and so on um, to signal variables. And the text in between can be quite free. It can be, this, you know, what you mean by what, this, what happened. In fact, there's an example um, that you can run um, where um, you actually mix um, uh, sort of first-order logic um, quantifiers and so on with English in the rules. But the basic, the basic idea is that you take several simple sentences as premises, uh, draw a line under them, and write a conclusion sentence, and you have defined the meaning of the conclusion sentences in terms of the meanings of the premise sentences. And so how does that avoid an infinite regress? Well, you go back and eventually you get to tables that have English sentences as a, as a heading. And, and that's kind of where the, the buck stops. Um, so, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd encourage you um, to, to, to um, you know, firstly run the examples provided, then make a copy of one of them and start fooling around with it and change it and, and maybe even write some examples of your own. And um, you know, come back, uh, um, give 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 some feedback about whether it, it really does address the. Um, the, the, the yeah, I can do that. But there are also a lot of people, a lot of researchers around there, natural language researchers who have a lot of experience with processing natural language, and uh, it would be good to get you know, you've got some ready-made experts there who can. Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, we had one of the attempt-to-controlled English people go on the system and try it out. Um, and uh, we, we, we sort of asked him, well, could attempt to control English through the oil industry example? And his um, his um, reply, uh, roughly speaking, uh, was yes, except for the numeric reasoning that's in there. So um, I, I think um, things like attempt to, this is out of the University of Zurich, in, in case um, you want to trace it up. I, I, I think things like the Attempto approach are, are in fact, Attempto is being backed by, by the European Union as an approach to this kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm not optimistic. I think um, dictionary grammar would be delightful if dictionary grammar approaches could be made to work. Um, I think it's awfully difficult to make them to work. Oh, oh. oh uh, may I make a uh, comment? Sorry, who, who is that, please? Hello? May I make a comment? Or, uh, yes, certainly. Who is it, please? This is John Sowa. Uh, I wanted to comment that uh, the point uh, uh, about uh, the problems of the uh, natural language research, that is, those issues are very complex, but I'd like to point out that these things like these controlled languages and the uh, version that Adrian has just been talking about are definitely not doing unrestricted natural language. In fact, essentially, those... Uh, sentences that Adrian uses to uh, as headings on the uh, databases and so on, those are very rigid templates which somebody, uh, uh, which some author has uh, decided uh, to state, and those are the only kinds of things that this system understands. And if uh, you as a user wants to uh, 
ask a question and you don't know exactly what templates are there. Adrian had just pointed out that the system would use information retrieval methods to suggest here are some uh, templates that are already predefined and maybe one of those that fits your match, but uh, fits what you're doing. But the idea there is that this system is most definitely not getting into the complexities of natural language research, and neither are things like the Attempto Controlled English or other versions of Controlled English. They are very definitely using a very uh, formal language that just happens to use English words instead of uh, um, arbitrary mathematical symbols. Okay, John, uh, I, I think broadly I agree with you, except uh, in your use of the word predefined, because predefined would tend to say that the system uh, has certain things that you can use. No, no, I meant predefined by the author who writes it, pre-selected yeah, yeah. by the author, not predefined right. by the system, but selected by the author, and, and a user who is not the author can ask questions using one or another of the templates that have been predefined by the author, and uh, the system allows you a tremendous flexibility in how the author can define or predefine those things for the benefit of the uh, users, but the only kinds of things that can be communicated or asked by a user who is not an author are uh, to fill in the blanks in one of those uh, templates. Uh, sort of, um, but, you know, the, there is a mitigation of the, the, what you're saying which is that if you have author permission and um, you want to phrase a, a sentence a different way, um, you can pick up with one of the sentences that the last author uh, used, use it as a premise, and uh, write your own uh, as a conclusion. So that's pretty right. lame in terms of uh, natural oh, language yeah. research. No, no, I, I was trying to talk about, uh, trying to uh, address the issue that uh, this is vastly, vastly simpler than natural language understanding than the research issues. This is mo oh, most sure. definitely not a research issue. This is a very uh, down-to-earth applied kind of technique. Yeah, yes, it is. It's very pragmatic. It's very applied. Um, it's hopefully useful. Um, I, I, I just sort of strengthen your point, John, if I may. Um, somebody used the um, nice uh, phrase that um, full natural language understanding is the AI complete problem. And what was meant by that was that there's a problem in, um, in, in efficiency of computing called NP completeness that has been around um, for uh, maybe 30 or 40 years and nobody has been able to solve it if they could. Right. I certainly agree. I would also say that the semantic web is an AI-complete problem. It's <laughs> not going to succeed until all of the AI research has been completed. Well, you're, you're, you're uh, on the same page as Rob McCool, I guess. Um, but in the meantime, you know, maybe something like this is useful to get the job done. Okay. Um, any, any, any last questions, then? Dennis Thomas here. Can I weigh in? Please, do ask your question. Right. Well, I'd like to weigh in on what John uh, said. I, in, in the previous gentleman, we would also agree that language, um, that language as a medium is probably doomed to failure. And in a good example, watching the latest uh, threads on the analog forum, uh, I think there's over 500 emails that have been exchanged trying to define what an ontology is. 
And it's very clear, and, and, and of course, it's coming to the resolution that there's many different mediating structures. There's the mathematical point of view, there's the linguistic point of view, there's the business point of view, and many, many other kind of points of view. And each of those comes with a set of of uh, you know conditionings and understandings and so forth that the other views don't have or don't embrace, and so alone, even at this limited level, yeah, I think the I, I think they're making progress and it and it shows you know some hopefulness for of achieving success, but once you get to the free flow uh, language level, it's unlikely from our perspective that that would happen. And truly, uh, as stated, the the AI problem, uh, uh, singularity, or whatever you want to call it, uh, clearly machines need to reason with the language of thought and, and take that language of thought and translate that into language, but going the other way, we don't see it happening. Yeah, I mean, yes, it seems to me that we're in violent agreement about this. No. Any other questions, please? Okay, um, I think then it's probably time for me to round up and uh, thank, uh, thank everyone for attending and in particular Adrian Walker for his very interesting presentation um, and his answers to the, the very good range of questions that we've had. Uh, so over to you then Peter for any final wrap-up. Well, uh, I would say thank you and of course uh, Thank you to big thank you to Matthew for championing this entire mini series on database and ontologies. And thank you, Adrian. And thanks to everyone who is able to join us today and for your contribution to the discussion. And of course, thank Bye -bye. you to you, Peter, for arranging all of this and, and having it from the technical end as well. Uh, once pleasure. again, thank you. <laughs>